we are on. On to your joy. Let me say it again. Hold on to your joy, people. Hallelujah. I don't care how wild the ride gets. Hang on to your joy. Because Isaiah said in Isaiah 12, 3 through 4, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. There is no greater joy in life than knowing Jesus and making him known. What is more wonderful? What is greater than that? Nothing's more wonderful than living in the warmth of his love and of his presence. Hallelujah. It lifts and it shields our hearts from the bitterness of life, and it keeps our hearts tender. And that tender-heartedness is God's most precious gift to us. It causes us to be filled with His joy and to feel His compassion for other people. The heart of joy, the tender heart of joy, gives us the ability to look upon others with the Savior's eye of faith, and to see them as potential fe fellow travelers along the path of life. Can you say praise the Lord? And so life's highest honor is consciously carrying the Holy Spirit into each and every day and each and every situation prepared to give living water to the thirsty from the wells of salvation. What is greater than walking with Jesus, walking in the Holy Spirit. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus told his disciples as he sat on the well of Samaria, and his disciples wanted to know if someone had fed him. And he answered him and he said, My nourishment comes, not, comes from doing the will of God who sent me and finishing his work. That's where I get my nourishment from, Jesus said. That's what nourishes me and makes me glad and energizes me. Jesus walked through the world surrounded in his day by controversies and issues. And he could have engaged in any one of them. He could have commented constantly on things. But his mission of being the well of salvation for lost souls was the thing that nourished him and sustained his joy. And he never deviated from it. He stayed on that mission. It's what fed him. Can you say amen? amen. And you know, because he stayed connected to heaven, people clung to Jesus wherever he went. They didn't cling to him because he was a great editorializer of the news, a great explainer of the events of the day. They clung to Jesus because he was in touch with heaven and he never stepped away from that pulpit. And so when Jesus told his friends that he was about to leave, he said to them in John chapter 16, verse 22, right now you have sorrow, but I will see you again. Let me repeat that. I will see you again. I will see you again and then you will rejoice. And no man can rob you of that joy. Amen. When Jesus told his friends he was about to leave, he said, 
That sorrow is going to pass, and I'm going to give you a joy no one can take away from you. That joy will be because I will be seeing you again, and you will know that I'm seeing you. For somebody who has seen Jesus and felt his love, the thought of being separated from him and, 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 and uh, facing the cold world alone is devastating. And it was devastating to the disciples. But knowing that Jesus sees us and is watching over us every moment brings a joy that nobody can take away. And when we know that Jesus sees us, it doesn't matter who doesn't see us. It doesn't matter who isn't looking at us when we know that God is looking at us. Remember, Jesus said, the thing that energizes me and nourishes me is doing the will of the Father. But the farther away from joy and the farther away from the well of salvation we get, the more malnourished and weak we become. And soon through our dryness, the world around us becomes more defenseless against the voracious appetites of sin. Their defenses against the demonic um, uh, temptations of the enemy, their defenses are made strong by the presence of you and I drawing salvation from the wells of living water and pouring it out. When we step away and our joy is diminished and we're not pouring that water out, that's when sin begins to take over and begins to spread and every evil imagination begins to multiply across the land. And so when the day of trouble arrives to threaten the nation with a spiritual drought, our response must be to return to the well of salvation and use our joy to pour living waters out on sinners. That is heaven's response. Jesus never deviated, and because of it, people clung to him wherever he went. So, what's happening today? And there's probably nobody more upside down and inside out and shaking uh, and, and wanting to know what's going on than Christians who are looking at the events of the past weeks and months in this past year. But I want to tell you that Jesus' most important end-time prophecy of all the things that he predicted would be important things to to mark the end of days with was what he said in Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13. Sin will be rampant everywhere. King James says iniquity will abound. I like this translation. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love, and the word there is agape. Sinners, people, don't have agape. Agape only lives in the hearts of born-again people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Sinners have love, but they have eros love, or they have a filial love. They have a family love or a brotherly kind of love. We have heaven's love, the love of the Savior in us. But Jesus warned that there would come a time when sin would be rampant everywhere, and the agape in many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when he said the one who endures to the end, he was saying the one who finishes crosses the finish line with their love still intact. 
The endurance is tied to the comment about love. If love grows cold, there's no guarantee for us at the finish line because it's the agape, it's the love of God that gets us to and across the finish line. The one that endures to the end, the one who keeps their love intact will the one be the one that makes it to the end. Paul warned also about the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, but understand this. Everyone wants to know what's going on. What's happening? How come it doesn't seem like our prayers are being answered? The government's just going nuts and, and craziness is arising in the land as the new standard of living. Paul said, but understand this. If you want to understand something, if you want to understand something that's going to help you position yourself where God needs us and wants us to be, Paul said, but understand this, that in the last days will come and set in perilous times of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. And so he said, Hard times, perilous times, difficult to deal with, difficult to bear, are coming. Well, what is happening today? No doubt, Satan is rolling out a new religion that's designed to replace the gospel as the new light of America and push the gospel and the word of God uh, off of the table. It has all the feel and zeal of a religion, but underneath, it's simply a manufactured monster cobbled together with bits and pieces of adolescent ideology and childish petulance. Satan's new Frankenstein religion replaces God's great commandment to love him first above all things and to love our neighbor as ourself and replaces that commandment with equality through retribution. And social justice which becomes nothing more than racism on the other foot. Now it's our turn to persecute. The new religion doesn't free people. It's a monster designed to offend people. It's designed to enslave them in unforgiveness and bitterness. And Satan is the one who has dialed up this new religion. It didn't come out of the Democrat Party. It didn't come out of rhino Republicans. It didn't come out of any political organization. It came, it was belched up out of hell. And Satan has put it together using all of the finest tactics that he has honed over the years to bring people into opposition with God. That's what he wants to do, is to take the human race made in the image and likeness of God and keep them as enemies of God. Keep them bound in bitterness and unforgiveness, and God won't be able to fellowship with them. We know that God demands that we forgive, that we walk in mercy and compassion so that he can have mercy and compassion on us. As I said, the new religion doesn't free people. It, it brings them into bondage, and it is designed to offend them and to trap them in unforgiveness. And it operates on a two-fold strategy, a two-footed or two-handed strategy. Number one, lead deceived people into offensive behavior. Then, number two, on the other hand, 
anger people of faith into carnal reactions to people number one. And then voila, when that comes together, you have ignition. When that comes together, you, you now have uh, uh, the, the situations the enemy's looking for. Joy dries up and the well of salvation's abandoned because all of God's people are angry and frustrated and swept up in what's going on in the world. Satan is stalking the hearts of God's people today. That's what's happening. And he's trying to use the force of our righteous indignation to push us out of love and into offense. But remember, offended people are not free people. Offended people are trapped slaves. Proverbs issues our most important counsel for this hour when it says in the fourth chapter, verse 23, Guard your hearts with all vigilance because out of them flow the forces of life. Therefore, with joy will you draw water out of the well of salvation. And as long as we keep looking for circumstances out there to agree with what we want and thinking that if they don't, that God has abandoned us, then we are looking in the wrong place to draw our joy. Our joy comes from the well of salvation within. And friends... The Bible says, where iniquity abounds, grace does much more abound. This is our hour for great revival. Praise the Lord. Can you say praise God? Praise Let me tell you what Satan's real target is behind all of this. It isn't the White House where political power lives. It's the heart house where agape lives. Amen. This is all designed at the heart of the Christian because faith works by love, according to Galatians, doesn't it? And because of that, Satan wants to freeze love and kill the flow of faith. The true target of Satan is faith. Because he knows, he knows that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And because of it, he's terrified of faith. It is his worst enemy, Christians walking in faith, holding their head up, looking to Jesus, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, unmoved, unflinching, unwavering because of all of the wind and the waves, keeping their eyes on Jesus. Hallelujah. It terrifies him because he can't touch that. Amen. It is the victory that overcomes the world. We are not a people who need certain conditions to thrive. We thrive in the presence of God, not because certain people are welcoming us or conditions are, are, are favoring what we would like. I, I would like things a certain way. I've been rich. I've been, well, no, I've never really been rich, but I've eaten at rich people's houses. And I've been poor. And if I had my way, I'd be eating, yeah, I'd be eating at the rich guy's house all the time. But I don't have to have things my way. Hallelujah. But I trust my Jesus because I know that when he has things his way, glory to God, Amen. then the thing that is most important to me is to see 
to see angry sinners corrupt and, and cursing God one minute and the next minute broken and in tears at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, please forgive me. I live for that. Heaven rejoices. Heaven's excited about one sinner who turns to Jesus Christ. So why should I let anything else excite me? I ought to let what excites heaven excite me. What heaven loves, I need to love. If I want to have that joy and draw waters out of the wells of salvation, I need to be happy over what makes God happy. Praise the Lord. Love, agape, the love of God, lets you see people through the eyes of faith and causes you to draw living waters for them out of the well of salvation. But I'll tell you this, you will not draw living water out of the well of salvation for somebody that you despise. You won't even let yourself imagine it. You get angry at people, whether it's a certain type of people or a certain individual or a certain class of people or people who think a certain way, and you write them off. You will not have joy towards them, and you will not draw water from the well of salvation. And that's why Paul writes, be angry, but do not sin, and, do, and give no opportunity to the devil. By the way, if you take taking notes, that's Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Paul said, be angry, but do not sin. Anger is an appropriate emotion. And appropriately, anger is called, in the scriptures, righteous indignation. It's being angry with Satan's works that defy God and destroy people's lives. That ought to be what makes us angry. And when we see people cooperating with that satanic effort, and we see that, that uh, the new Frankenstein religion that they're rolling out in America, when we see that it's going to destroy our young people, it's going to enslave our population, it's going to divide our people, it's going to do the very opposite of everything they say it's going to be. Let's all come together and sing Kumbaya, Kumbaya but it's over the, the broken and oppressed lives of their political opponents. We see that. We look at that. We see it for what it is. We know that that's the, the destroyer working. But we have to understand that blind and broken people are allowing themselves to be used by Satan. Satan is the enemy. He is the one doing this. That's why our warfare is not a struggle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not give an opportunity to the devil. You see, the point at which your anger becomes a sinful opportunity for Satan is when you go beyond righteous indignation over the sin and you start hating the sinner. When you visualize the sinner getting the judgment that they deserve, rather than weeping at the feet of Jesus and then joyously joining you at the well of salvation, when you can't see that, but when you see them, you see them being broken for their sins with judgment, then you've lost your joy and you've gone too far. That's when anger has crossed the line into sin. You have to look at the people who the thing that righteous indignation 
rises up against is flowing through. You have to look at the people that that's flowing through and hate the sin and the devil that has sponsored it and at the same time want to have a vision to see Saul of Tarsus become the mighty Apostle Paul. The faith to see a Saul become a Paul is not going to come out of any political ideology. It's not going to come out of any process. It comes simply out of agape, the father who loved Saul. Jesus who loved him is the one who stopped him on the Emmaus Road. And Saul said, Lord, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Hallelujah. And there he was, broken before the Lord. And for the rest of his life, that man labored and poured himself out and paid with his life back as best he could what God had done for him. Although we don't have to pay back, it was a love offering. He gave his life in return for the life that Jesus gave him. Satan isolates and destroys people by making them the object of everyone else's hate. You know, before the Germans could tolerate the annihilation of six million Jews, they had to be conditioned to despise them. And before that conditioning of prejudice, the German population wouldn't have stood for Belsen, Belsen, Auschwitz, or any of those other camps. But after being conditioned to despise and to hate people, they were able to tolerate the mass murder. And that's how Satan isolates and destroys people. And Jesus' own disciples said to him one day when they saw a couple of guys out there not agreeing with Jesus with what they were preaching, Peter came up and said, Lord, these guys over there, they're not, they're not cooperating with us. They're, they're preaching against us. Would you like us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? And I know we kind of laugh at it because we're looking in the rearview mirror of the book of Acts. We know that love is at the heart of the gospel. But, but Jesus looked at him and you could just see him wrinkling up his brow and going, man, you, have, you don't know what spirit you're of. Get off that track. Get back over here on the, on the track of God. He said, I didn't come to destroy lives. I came to save lives. You need to see me saving lives. And that, that's how you will be my disciples. So hold on to your joy. That's the message this morning. Don't forfeit your ministry of reconciliation. That is your place in this world. You know, when Satan uses ignorant people to persecute you with cancel culture, and by the way, unless there is some change, if the momentum keeps going the way it's going, persecution against Christians is on the horizon. It's not far off. So you probably haven't begun to see the, the hard and nasty, ugly spirit of cancel culture personally against yourself. But when Satan uses and stirs up ignorant people who've bought into the Frankenstein religion to persecute you with cancel culture, realize this. It's not really your access to Facebook and Twitter that Satan's after. It's your access to agape that he's after. 
He's using foolish people to persecute you, not because he wants you to change your political position or your social ideologies. He wants you to step away from the well, back away from the joy. He's after the agape. You can do what you want with Facebook or Twitter. He could care less. It's the love that he's concerned with. And so I want to close this morning by saying that the big question that faces the followers of Christ at this time isn't whether or not God is, is on a judgment posture as he looks at our society and, and has decided he doesn't want to save our society. He's backed off and he's wanting to pour out judgment. Because I'll tell you this, he is definitely going to find Christians out there who will go into the harvest and love those people into the kingdom. He's going to find them. So the big question, the real big question facing you is, are you going to be in the harvest with them? That's the question before you and I. Will you be in the harvest bringing them to Jesus, or will you be sidelined by bitterness like the prodigal son's brother? So again, hold on to your joy. That joy is the strongest gift that God has given you because it will keep you tender-hearted. It will keep you drawing healing waters from the well of salvation and offering it to sinners. And as long as you and I follow that principle in all that we do and know that whatever confronts you as an invitation or an opportunity to deviate from that, that is of the enemy. And whatever encourages you to do that, that's the Holy Spirit. As you look ahead, that's all you need to know to navigate these difficult times that the Bible predicts that we are facing. If you'd close your Bible and stand with me this morning, I'd like us to take a moment And if this message has touched your heart, if it's confirmed in you something, or if you need to make an adjustment in your thinking, the Holy Spirit is with us. He's here. And while we have our hearts tender and freshly furrowed by the plow blade of my preaching <laughs> and some seeds dropped in there, let's act before, the, before you go have lunch and it hardens up and crusts over. <laughs> Let's act now while hearts are freshly opened. Father God, we come to you. If we're not capable of weeping, give us tears. If we're not capable of empathizing, help us. If we have to be broken so that we can love, come and break us. We would rather endure your chastening and be people who are truly on the spearhead's tip of what God is doing. Lord, then to press ahead with any plans or ideas of our own, looking to find your will and discover it as we go. Father, you have said, my sheep know my voice, another they'll not follow. So knowing your will ahead of time is how we move through life. Your will is that with well-doing, 
withdrawing water joyously from the well of salvation and giving it to people and not putting ourselves in the place of, uh, of judgment saying this one's worthy and that one's not worthy. Oh, this one looks like they'd make a good Christian, but that one... Father, put us in front of the most difficult person. I pray for each and every one of us this week that you will put us in a situation. We'll be standing in front of somebody that will be tested. Can we come up with agape? Can we take joy and draw water from the well of salvation and tell that person, Jesus loves you. He has a life for you. He's real. Glory to God. I pray the Lord will give us those experiences and that he will restore in us, if need be, a heart of love. Glory to God. Because love is going to win. Let me say it again. Love is going to win. Not filio, not eros, all those low-grade human loves, but the high-grade pure agape of Jesus the Lord. That joy. Come on, don't you just want to share it? Picture right now the person who you find most obnoxious. Don't open up your eyes and look at me. But picture that person. It's probably not an actual individual. It's a characterization of some type. Picture some scene, some individual that just rubs the cat's fur the wrong way. And now, if it rubs the cat's fur the wrong way, maybe the cat needs to turn around. I want you to look at that person, and I want you to see them broken at the foot of the cross, weeping and saying, Lord, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. How could I be so wrong? Forgive me. Forgive me. Now you and that person are joyously celebrating at the well of salvation, handing drinks to one another. Glory to God.